warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon, in for Julia Chatterley. Chatterley. And coming up on today's show, a fresh wave of Russian airstrikes have targeted cities across Ukraine, killing at least two people and further damaging infrastructure. And strategic Russian bombers reportedly used for the first time since the start of the war. A report from Kiev just ahead. Beijing, meantime, reporting its first COVID death since the easing of virus restrictions. The unofficial death toll, though, said to be much higher as COVID cases surge across China. Also, Elon Musk suspending the Twitter accounts of a number of journalists, accusing them of violating privacy rules and endangering the safety of his family. The move raising new fears of free speech on the platform. And the ongoing global stock market sell-off, a top story as well. U.S. futures pretty much pointing to further losses on Wall Street across the board after the worst day for stocks in well over a month, with all of the major averages falling by over 2%. Europe currently lower as well after a weak Asian handover. Investors still rattled by the hawkish tone from global central bankers after this week's rate hikes. Lots of concern that their fight against inflation will tip economies into recession. Professor Jeremy Siegel of the Wharton School of Business joins us later with his outlook on where Wall Street and rates are headed. But first, dozens of Russian airstrikes pummeling Ukraine this morning, targeting yet again energy infrastructure. Air raid sirens rang out across the country in what Kiev is calling one of the biggest missile attacks there since the start of the war. The capital, the northern, central and southern regions all hit. The mayor of Kharkiv describing the damage there as, quote, colossal, saying there is no electricity, heat or water. Ukraine says 76 missiles have been launched and an Air Force spokesman says that for the first time, Russia used strategic bombers. And as critical infrastructure is targeted, Ukraine's state energy provider says an emergency mode has been activated. CNN's Will Ripley has more from Kyiv. The Kyiv City Military Administration says the Ukrainian capital has survived one of the most massive missile attacks since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. Now, I'm standing in a square where you can seize destroyed vehicles from the beginning of the war. We actually can't take you to the scene of these attacks because the targets were critical infrastructure and Ukraine has very strict rules about filming and showing these locations. They don't want to tip off the Russians to what areas they might have hit and what areas they might have missed. But in this case, Kiev says that uh, most of the missiles never reached their targets because they say out of around 40 missiles that Russia fired directly at Kiev, which is a huge number even for locals who've been living here throughout this full-scale war for nearly 10 months now. They say they shot down 37 of them. There were, however, three explosions reported here in Kyiv, both on the east and west banks of the river, two of them in the east, one in the west. Uh, there are reports uh, across Ukraine of entire cities plunged into darkness as a result of these attacks, which didn't just hit here in Kyiv. They also hit to the south in Odessa and to the north in Sumy and Kharkiv. Uh, but here in the capital, there were tens of thousands of people sheltering in place, hiding in underground subway stations, waiting for an all clear. And there were sounds of explosions. We actually heard them this morning as we were getting ready to pack up and go on a road trip. The air raid sirens went off and there were some loud explosions that could be heard in our vicinity. CNN staff who lived even closer 
to the scenes of the explosion said they also heard the sound of the air defense systems being activated, shooting down presumably those dozens of missiles that were headed towards the Ukrainian capital. The number of uh, dead and injured, uh, of course, those reports are always fluid, but as of now, we know at least two people killed, at least five people injured, including children. And UNICEF just days ago warned that these ongoing Russian attacks, this constant bombardment of the civilian power infrastructure, is putting the physical and mental health of nearly every single child here in Ukraine at desperate risk. Will Ripley, CNN, Kyiv, Ukraine. And a U.S. announcement on whether it will send Patriot missiles to Ukraine is expected at any time. It comes amid those escalating Russian strikes on civilian infrastructure. The Pentagon says that the Kremlin does not have a say in the matter and will not dictate what security assistance the U.S. provides to Ukraine. CNN's Barbara Starr joins me live now at the Pentagon. Barbara, wonderful to have you. So do we expect the president to sign this? I mean, what happens now? Well, that's what everyone is waiting for, uh, the package moving its way through the bureaucracy. And we do expect to hear something in the coming days about the real possibility of Patriot missile defense systems being shipped, being transferred to Ukraine. This could be a very significant step because it will give the Ukrainians the ability to have these Patriot radars lock on to incoming Russian missiles and the Patriot missiles then to launch and attack those Russian incoming projectiles at a significant altitude and distance from their target. So it provides this sort of air defense shield, if you will, uh, to protect civilian populations, energy infrastructure, all the things that the Russians have really been hitting with, uh, with devastation. So a lot of interest in getting that moving. They will have to train Ukrainian forces on it. So that will take some time. And those Ukrainian forces likely to have to travel to Germany to get that training. In Germany, U.S. forces are stepping up their overall training, pardon me, of Ukrainian forces. Um, they're going to up it to about 500 troops a month being trained by the U.S. and Germany, you know, trying to get them really in shape for the winter to be able to move in a much more organized fashion, to be able to operate more complex weapon systems, really moving now into this longer term commitment for the support for Ukraine. Rahel? Mm. Barbara, you explained well there sort of why these systems would be so significant for Ukraine, especially at this stage in the war. Can you explain a bit more, though, about how significant the training would be? As I understand it, these are very sophisticated, complex systems and typically take months of training. I mean, walk me through a bit more of that. Well, uh, not just the Patriot, but other systems as well. What they want to do is is help the Ukrainians learn how to basically shoot and maneuver on the battlefield as a unit. Now, the Ukrainians have really proven over the months uh, their capabilities uh, at attacking the Russians, and they've been doing well. But with winter setting in, and this now really apparently settling in for a much longer-term proposition, a much longer-term war, um, the, the feeling is they've got to get the Ukrainians trained up for those more sophisticated, more coordinated maneuvers It will give them extra punch on the battlefield and make them, the U.S. hopes, even more successful. Rahel? Barbara Starr at the Pentagon. Thank you. In Seoul, South Korea, meantime, an emotional memorial service held on the 49th day since that deadly crowd crush on Halloween. Today marks the final day of mourning in Buddhist tradition. Nearly 160 people lost their lives in the tragedy. Paula Hancock reports from Seoul. For some of the bereaved families here in Seoul's Itaewon district, it's the first time that they have come 
to the site of the Halloween crowd crush that took the lives of more than 150 people. There is an emotional memorial this Friday evening. They're currently reading out every name of the victims. Bereaved families are here, some of the friends, some of the survivors, also uh, some first responders who were on the scene trying to save lives. There is a sense of national trauma when it comes to this tragedy. Some of the general public stopping also to pay their respects to those who lost their lives. A painful look at the last hours of their daughter's life. Owil Suk and Kim Eun-mi look through photos on her phone, trying to piece together how Chimin became one of the 158 victims of Seoul's Halloween crowd crush. I can't look at the photos, they make me cry. The 25-year-old was photographed at 9.35pm inside a bar, then outside in the increasingly crowded back streets of Itaewon. 9.59pm, her father says she messaged friends to say she was going home. 10.07pm, the last photo Jimin took with her friend. Her friend who survived says a few minutes later, the slow-moving crowd suddenly moved faster, sucking them into the alleyway. Her parents and older brother made frantic phone calls to hospitals and police. One o'clock the following afternoon, they were asked to come and identify their daughter's body at a hospital morgue. That image of her keeps coming to me, so I can't sleep at night. It snowed yesterday and got cold. Jimin is buried outside. It makes me more sad. Grief is becoming clouded with unanswered questions and anger. I hope the truth will be revealed soon. We don't know how my daughter died and how her body ended up there. A special investigation is ongoing. Call logs show the first emergency calls for crowd control came in about four hours before the tragedy. So far, two police officers have been dismissed and arrested, accused of destroying evidence. The chief of police in the area has been suspended. One police officer who wants to conceal his identity for fear of retribution for speaking out says he arrived to see a pile of people in the narrow alley. We couldn't pull people out from the bottom. There was too much pressure. I assumed they had already died. People in the second and third layers were fading, crying out for help, but we couldn't pull them out. He says it was already too late when he arrived and safety planning should have been made in advance. The problem with this now is that the people who should really be responsible are not taking responsibility. The direction of the investigation is not looking up, only down. There may have been mistakes trying to save just one more life, but if you blame us, who would want to do this job? Political infighting and finger-pointing has no place in the home where Jimin grew up. Her parents read every birthday card, pour over every photo, struggling to cope with a life-changing tragedy that should never have happened. A makeshift memorial started just the day after this tragedy happened. People leaving flowers and messages just outside the subway exit. That has continued to this day, a month and a half later, and it is also now in the alleyway itself where many lost their lives. Post-it notes stuck to the walls with messages of condolences. Paula Hancock's CNN, Seoul. Meanwhile, across the border, experts say that North Korea could be taking its ballistic missile technology to the next level. State media say leader Kim Jong-un attended a test of a new solid fuel rocket engine on Thursday. The test was reported as a success, which Western experts said could be significant. Pyongyang has so far been using only liquid-fueled rocket engines. But missiles propelled with solid fuel, well, that's easier to launch and give opponents less time to react. Experts say North Korea would still be a number of steps away from using those engines and its ballistic missiles.
As record high COVID-19 cases sweep across China, a prominent Chinese doctor appears to be downplaying the crisis. In an online speech to university students on Thursday, the doctor said that the Omicron variant should be renamed the coronavirus cold. That jives with the government's recent efforts to try to play down the severity of the epidemic. China is easing COVID restrictions following unprecedented protests against the zero COVID policy. CNN's Selena Wang reports. As COVID rapidly spreads throughout China, the Chinese government's spin is that everything is fine, that China's COVID policy was a success and is still a success. Propaganda has taken a complete U-turn from declaring an all-out people's war on COVID to suddenly now telling people your health is in your own hands. There's a lot of state media headlines like this. In the People's Daily, the headline reads, start by wearing a mask and be the first person responsible for your own health. In Xinhua, the headline reads, in the fight against the epidemic, everyone is the first person responsible for their own health. Other articles are praising the last three years of zero COVID and hailing this pivot as an achievement including this commentary from the People's Daily that has gone viral. The key lines are, quote, The virus has weakened, but we have become stronger. Chairman Xi's insightful judgment, scientific and firm decisions shows his reliability as the people's leader. It pointed out and provided crucial guidance for us to win this people's battle, total battle and precise battle against COVID. A lot of people online, they're furious over that article. Some are calling it a lie that completely ignores the devastating impact of zero COVID over the last three years, the trauma and pain that people faced during lockdowns. No apology or no admitting that the government has ever made a mistake. State media has instead focused on how the government is responding. The government said it will train volunteers and retired health workers to boost manpower. The government is increasing the number of fever clinics. This social media video shows people waiting inside a Beijing stadium that's been converted into a makeshift fever clinic. You can see some lines forming and people waiting on benches. We're already seeing hospitals under strain here in the capital. But the really big concern is what happens when people go back home for the upcoming Chinese New Year and COVID starts to spread more rapidly in the rural parts of China with weaker health infrastructure. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. In France, meantime, a fire near the city of Lyon has claimed the lives of 10 people, many of the victims' children. Five of the victims were between the ages of 3 and 15. Four people are critically ill in the hospital. According to French media, flames broke out in the eight-story apartment building, quickly engulfing the top three floors. Investigators have not ruled anything out, including arson. Meanwhile, the father of a U.S. college student who's been missing in France for more than two weeks says his son is alive. Kenny Zeland Jr. disappeared in late November while studying at a university in the city of Grenoble. He was later seen at a store about an hour away before vanishing without a trace. Let's go right to CNN's Melissa Bell, who is live for us in Paris. So, Melissa, what do we know? Well, for the time being, very little about why he vanished or what happened to him in the 17 days between the last time his father, Kendallan Jr., Sr., and uh, spoke to him on the 27th of November and this morning when finally he was able to speak to his son and understand that he was alive. Now, we don't know what happened to him in the meantime. All we know from the prosecutor is that Kenny Deland Jr. is in fact now in Spain. Now, we'd been down to Grenoble on Wednesday to try and speak to his host mother, to some of his friends, as the mystery continued to deepen about what had happened. And 
What they'd all said is that they believed it was still possible that he might turn up before his flight back to the U.S., which is due tomorrow. But clearly, Rahel, as every day passed, it seemed less and less likely. As you say, the last time he was actually physically seen was that CCTV footage from the 3rd of December. So a mystery as to where he's been and why he didn't give any news to his family. But huge relief, of course, for Ken Deland Sr. and the entire family, Rahel. Absolutely. Huge relief. But as you point out, Melissa, still so many questions. Do we have any sense of physically how he's doing? Is he okay? I mean, have we gotten any sense of his condition? No, not for the time being. In fact, uh, our producer here, Saskia Van Dorn, happened to be on the phone with Kenny Deland Sr. when he got the news at last after all those days. Just before he'd been crying, it had been so long he wasn't sleeping, speaking of his growing despair about what might happen when he finally got a text. Uh, And we know now he's spoken to him, but for the time being, we don't know anything about the physical state that he's in, the mental state that he's in, or indeed what happened in that period between that last phone conversation and the one his father's managed to have with him at last just now. Mm, But relief at last that he is uh, alive and seemingly well. Melissa Bell, thank you. Well, straight ahead, suspended from Twitter. The journalist locked out amid unfounded claims by Elon Musk. And delivering a boost to the electric car industry. The CEO of PodPoint tells me what's needed to get charging infrastructure up to speed. We'll be right back. Welcome back to First Move. World Cup final action taking place in Qatar this weekend. But far from world-class performance across global stock markets, right across the screen there. Wall Street on track for a third day of losses after Thursday's 2.5% tumble. Rate hikes and recession fears ruining the usual end-of-year cheer. Now, at least one U.S. stock is soaring. That would be space satellite firm Maxar reaching for the stars, literally. It is up more than 100% pre-market after being bought out by private equity firm Advent, up 121% or 51 bucks a share. Not bad. Also, some encouraging news for a number of U.S.-listed Chinese stocks. U.S. regulators have gained full access to the audits of companies like Alibaba and JD.com, lifting the threat of their Wall Street delisting. Twitter, meantime, could be hit with sanctions after suspending several prominent journalists. European Commission today warning that it stands ready to take action over the platform's worrying suspension of reporters, saying Elon Musk should be aware that the law requires respect of media freedom. He, Elon Musk, falsely accused those suspended Thursday of sharing his live location and giving out what he called assassination coordinates. One of those journalists is CNN's Donny O'Sullivan, who did not share the billionaire's real-time whereabouts, but did recently write about another social media account that tracked Musk's private plane. Let's bring in CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy. Oliver, great to have you. So, I mean, where do we start? I mean, what is Elon Musk saying about this? Because it certainly caused quite a bit of attention. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack here. But I think the big picture here is that this has really exposed Elon Musk and his so-called commitment to free speech. You'll remember when Elon Musk took over this platform, he really said that he wanted to be a free speech absolutist, someone who is going to allow basically anything to go on the platform as long as it fell within the bounds of the law. And you're seeing now that's not necessarily the case. He's banned a number of high-profile journalists who cover him from top news organizations, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and as you mentioned, CNN. And I, so I think it's really kind of exposed the facade that, that Musk had, that he uh, um, you know, cares about free speech. I think he, it, he really is uh, being exposed as someone who's rather thin-skinned 
and willing to censor free speech if it bothers him. And this raises a number of questions about the future of free speech on the platform. Of course, Twitter's a private company. Twitter can do whatever it wants, and, and Musk owns Twitter, so he can do as he, he wishes. But, you know, it has for a long time been um, a sort of digital town square, and if he's going to now start censoring journalists who are critical of him on the platform, I, I think that's going to change the dynamics quite a bit. And it's also going to call into question whether news organizations are going to still want to remain on this platform. Are outlets going to uh, continue to put their content on Twitter to allow their journalists to report on Twitter, knowing that Musk might just ban them at any given moment? Uh, CNN, in its statement reacting to this, said it will reevaluate its relationship with Twitter based on its response, the response it gets from Musk um, over Donny O'Sullivan's ban. And finally, I'd point out, this also raises a number of questions for advertisers. Do companies like Amazon, Apple, do they want to be associated with a platform that's now in the business of censoring the press? Uh, we'll see. It's a great point, Oliver. I mean, just these concerns about free speech, just these concerns about some of the vitriol we have seen uh, seemingly pick up since Elon Musk took over Twitter. I also wonder, though, about the actual operations of Twitter in terms of are people still using the site? Is usage, is this working? Because you could argue that all of this fuss is creating a lot of attention for Twitter. I mean, is it actually translating to higher usage? It definitely is. I mean, there have been third-party uh, firms that have come in and they've uh, analyzed the data. And yes, there are more people using Twitter uh, these days under Elon Musk. Now, the, the usage that doesn't necessarily translate into them uh, tweeting and engaging with others. It's just that they're logging on, wanting to see probably the, the, the fire, the car crash. I mean, that's what this has really become. And I think Musk knows that. The more he does these sort of things, the more interest he's generating. We're covering it on television, which is probably generating more interest. And so, yeah, to some extent, uh, these antics from Musk have driven usage up. Again, it's no use to him for, as a business practice if advertisers are no longer comfortable on the platform. And he's certainly not doing anything to get advertisers uh, to be interested in coming back and spending their ad dollars on Twitter. It's a fair point. And I guess to that end, Oliver, I would ask, I mean, at what point do you think Elon Musk rethinks some of these unconventional strategies? I mean, would it take big advertisers leaving Twitter or news organizations like CNN saying, you know what, we don't need it? I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of times when stuff like this happens, uh, companies put out statements, right, saying they'll evaluate the situation and nothing ends up happening. And I think as long as that's the case, as long as he's able to get away with uh, these sort of things, these stunts, uh, he will do so. Uh, uh, but if you see large news organizations pull back from Twitter, celebrities pull back from Twitter, advertisers pull back from Twitter, I think if there was a cascade event like that, you could see him you know, start to panic and, and worry that what he is doing is actually completely destroying Twitter and the business. But right now, as of this moment, we haven't seen that. And so I wouldn't be surprised if he continues uh, behaving like this, given that he's not really facing uh, too many consequences. Mm. It's a great point, Oliver. And in some ways, maybe you could argue all of these stunts, as you put it, are driving usage and driving eyeballs. And maybe it's something that people don't want to see, but you can't look away. Oliver Darcy, we'll see. Thank you. Thank you. 
Welcome back. In South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa is expected to remain leader of his party, the ANC. Delegates are meeting in Johannesburg over the next few days to pick their next leader. This comes just days after Mr. Ramaphosa avoided impeachment proceedings. Now, regardless of who runs the party or is president, they will have to face their citizens' concerns that the government is not providing basic services. These are live pictures now of Mr. Ramaphosa there. Now, corruption and mismanagement have plagued many African nations for decades, and funneling billions in new investments to the region won't be easy. In South Africa, where the president, as we said, has been embroiled in scandal, many important public services are not handled by the government, but by charities or private firms, as David McKenzie reports. A cash and transit team evading a sophisticated criminal attack. Coming after us. You likely saw this viral video from South Africa. Attacks like this happen here all the time. So basically what we do is we do live vehicle tracking and monitoring. Some of the best protected vehicles and cash depots are tracked real time at Fidelity's nerve center in Johannesburg. Are you a step behind or a step ahead right now? We try and be one jump ahead of crime, um, but we know that uh, they're very creative and they're well organized. So we're looking at the training, we're looking at technology. We got a hijacking. One of our clients was hijacked in Benoni on the East Rand, and his vehicle is updating in Davidton. The intervention unit has come here to the east of Johannesburg. This location was the last spot that a signal came out of a vehicle that they think was hijacked. This search ends without a win. This is our vehicle checking unit. Is it frustrating where you see this has been thrown out? A lot. Why? They get away with too much. The bad guys won. Yeah. Active private security officers here outnumber the police roughly five to one. Shouldn't the government be doing this? Well, uh, that, that, that's uh, why the industry is so big. Because I don't think government is getting to all of it. All of this goes beyond security. On the streets of Joburg, private companies have to sponsor the Pothole Patrol. When a fire gutted one of Africa's most important public hospitals, well-known charity Gift of the Givers stepped in. South Africans frequently joke that its founder should run the country. The fire service, safety, security, construction, water, all of this is being handled by private individuals or charities. What does that tell you? The, the, the message is very strong and clear. The country has lost faith in the government. That's the reality. And at the same time, the country has lost a lot of hope. Every time when I look at my kids, especially in this moment, and I see that I can't provide them with most of the things which they need, especially when it comes now to Christmas time. Hope is in short supply for Vincent Indoor, who lost his construction job during COVID and says his wife left him. Yeah, it's the survival of the fittest, to be honest. It's not like I can say it's easy. In Deep Sluit informal settlement, the sewage water runs through the streets. The electricity is more off than on. Vincent tried to set up citizen patrols, but they ran out of funds. He says the police come late if they come at all. The government says it's working to improve services, and millions depend on its social grant program. But rampant corruption and mismanagement hamper these efforts. At the end of the day, it is our country. And I said very clearly, the country does not belong to the government. It belongs to the people of South Africa. So we can either sit and moan and cry knowing nothing can be done, or within ourselves, we can do something and fix it wherever we can.
the cruel reality. In the world's most unequal society, the rich can afford to secure their lives. The poor are on their own. David McKenzie, CNN, Johannesburg. In Peru, meantime, Peru's Supreme Court has ordered former President Pedro Castillo to remain behind bars for the next 18 months over concerns that he may try to flee the country. Violent protests by Castillo's supporters have erupted ever since he was arrested last week. A state of emergency has been declared, but the unrest continues to spread. CNN's Rafael Romo has the latest. As it has been the case for more than a week in Peru, police once again clashed with protesters. This violent protest in Cusco mirrors what has happened across the South American country, including in Lima, the capital. Defense Minister Alberto Otarola declared a state of emergency Wednesday that will be in effect for 30 days. He said the national police and armed forces are responding to acts of vandalism, violence and seizure of roads. Peru's national police has said earlier that highways in at least four regions across the country had been blocked by protesters demanding the immediate return to power of former president Pedro Castillo. As you may remember, Castillo was impeached and arrested on December 7 after he announced plans to dissolve Congress and install an emergency government. He was apparently trying to get ahead of a congressional vote on his impeachment. Castillo is accused of conspiracy and rebellion. He denies those allegations. Legalmente. Dina Boluarte, who was Castillo's vice president and succeeded him after his impeachment, said Wednesday that it is technically possible to call for new elections by the end of next year, even though Peruvians are not scheduled to go to the polls until 2026. National police were deployed to Lima's international airport, which, according to a spokeswoman, is operating normally. However, some regional airports remain closed. This means that many international tourists are stuck without a connecting flight to the capital and must stay in Peru for now. Train service between Machu Picchu and Cusco was disrupted due to deadly protests leaving dozens of tourists stranded at the Inca Citadel. A political crisis has gripped Peru for years. Boluarte, who took over after the ousting of Pedro Castillo, is Peru's sixth president in less than five years. Rafael Romo, CNN, Atlanta. And turning again to markets, U.S. stocks are up and running for the final session of the week. We are about six minutes into the session. It's a lower open across the board after Thursday's steep drop. The Dow, in fact, suffering its worst one-day loss since September in the previous session. Retail stocks, one of the worst performing sectors after new data showed inflation weary consumers really pulling back on spending. And as we head into the last two weeks of the trading year, the S&P 500 now down almost 20 percent year to date. The tech heavy Nasdaq off more than 30 percent. Many on Wall Street worried that both the S&P and the Nasdaq will soon be retesting their 52 week lows. Let's get some analysis now with Jeremy Siegel. He is a professor at the Wharton Business School at the University of Pennsylvania in my hometown of Philadelphia. Professor, it's great to have you on the program. I followed your work for quite some time now. So, I mean, is the Fed getting this wrong again? I mean, first they were wrong in terms of inflation being transitory, but are they wrong in terms of now doing too much? Uh, Absolutely. And that's my feeling. Uh, uh, They were way too loose early let inflation get out of hand, and then it's like they got religion. Oh, my God, now they see inflation everywhere. 
uh, when I think uh, if you really look hard at the data, inflation has gone down dramatically uh, and is, uh, is going to continue to go down dramatically. Their, their dot plot, which is their projections of where uh, the, their interest rate and their monetary policy is going to be next year, is, in my opinion, far too tight and greatly increases the risk of recession in 2023. Professor, to your point, we certainly have gotten a few inflation reports that came in uh, certainly lighter than expected, encouraging reports, as Powell said. But is it too soon to declare victory on inflation? I mean, Powell might push back and say there is a, a real fear that inflation could rise again. And now perhaps we're dealing with entrenched inflation. I mean, what do you say to that? Well, entrenched inflation requires, first of all, a, a, a big rise in inflationary expectations, which has not happened. Uh, the housing sector is going down. And as I've, I have pointed out, in the official statistic, it's very lagged in its uh, calculation of housing inflation. So in the official statistics, you still see house prices going up. But in the on-the-ground data and indexes, uh, that we follow, we see housing prices going down. Actually, Powell did admit that that was going to be the case, and we were going to see that in the middle of the year. But I think it's wrong to wait to the middle of the year when recessionary mm. forces could build far too great, uh, and their pivot to an easier monetary policy might be too late to save the economy from a recession. It's such an interesting point, Professor, because I think we talk a lot about the lag of monetary policy in terms of thinking about when do these rate hikes actually start to cool demand and cool inflation. But it works the opposite way, too. Right. I mean, in terms of rate cuts and sort of stimulating demand, that takes time, too. And I think that's what you're getting at, that it might be too late for the Fed to really prevent unnecessary damage if they wait too long because of the lag. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, controlling the economy is not like steering a car. <laughs> when you turn the wheel, the car immediately goes. No, it takes a long time for it to move. Uh, and in fact, Powell himself uh, talks as if, yes, monetary policy works with long and variable legs. Uh, and then on the other hand, he said, we have to see inflation really come down uh, you know, convincingly using year-over-year data, which contains a lot of past data, not forward-looking data, uh, in, in terms of justifying an even tighter monetary policy. Um, uh, in fact, he himself admitted that perhaps up to two-thirds of the effect of the tightening that we've seen since March has not yet been felt. Uh, but that even one-third has pushed the housing market down, commodity prices down, gasoline prices down, cargo rates, shipping rates down, goods rates down. Right. Um, the only thing that is not going down right now is wages. I think he's overly concerned. A lot of workers are just in catch-up mode. They have fallen behind inflation. I think it's wrong for Powell to target workers and say we're going to prevent or we're going to set up the economy so that you cannot recoup those inflationary losses. So I think that that is not a, uh, the, the right way to look at his last justification uh, uh, for keeping policy as tight as it is. Well, let's let's stay there, Professor. Right. This idea about wages still wages and services still driving inflation because, you know, there's a lot of debate now and a lot of concern that maybe we're seeing structural changes in the labor market. And maybe there are millions of people who won't come back to the labor force. And so what to do about that? Because doesn't that 
increased pressure on wages if suddenly we have less workers and still really high demand? Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, Powell mentioned explicitly that he felt there was a structural change uh, in the workforce, uh, a reduction in the number of workers. And, you know, Economics 101 will tell you if there's going to be a reduction in workers, then you have to raise their wages in order to induce them uh, into jobs. That's a supply effect. That's a structural effect. It is not something that the Federal Reserve, in my opinion, should, should try to suppress uh, uh, re- remember just last year when uh, Chairman Powell thought that those inflationary forces were due to temporary uh, supply factors. He said, we, we, you know, we're not going to act against them. Well, they weren't supply factors. They were a result of too much stimulus that we had. Well, the structural shifts that you just mentioned are a supply factor, a real supply factor, and it is not the job of the central f- bank to work against those supply factors. So mm-hmm. I, I really see no justification for the extreme hawkishness of the Federal Reserve. It's an interesting point. I mean, if you argue that you can only impact the demand side on the good side, I guess you can't argue that you can impact the supply side on the, the labor side. Jeremy Siegel, Professor at Wharton, amazing to have you. Thank you. Appreciate your insights. Thanks for having me. And coming up on First Move, smart EV charging solutions. The CEO of PotPoint coming up next. Welcome back to First Move and meet PodPoint. It's a major provider of EV charging stations in the UK, installing charging units at homes, businesses, and workplaces. The company has installed more than 175,000 charging points across the country so far. But the ongoing EV production delay is also causing some challenges for the market. Joining me now is PodPoint CEO Eric Fairbarn. Eric, great to have you. Thank you. Good morning. Great to be here. So let's start there. I mean, how significant are these production delays? Let's say I wanted to order an EV vehicle today. I mean, how soon before I get it? Yeah, quite significant is the answer. So anywhere typically between 12 to 18 month delay from order of the vehicle to delivery. And of course, that's not normal. If we didn't have the, uh, the global supply chain crisis, you'd be thinking about getting your vehicle within, you know, easily within 90 days in a typical market. So it is quite significant. But I do also think it's temporary. We've got probably another 18 months of this. And then hopefully those supply chain constraints are beginning to be behind us. Well, where are you seeing the the biggest sort of uh, challenges with the supply chain? Is it still chips? Is it something else? I mean, where are you seeing the biggest challenges? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the cars, it's a pretty complex product. But um, I think the root cause is in connectors, is in chips, it's in looms, it's it's various different challenges. But because vehicles are such a complex product, you know, any one of those issues can cause delays. And on the positive side, demand is a significant factor as well. There's loads of demand for electric vehicles, which is positive. Mm. But, you know, we were up in the UK about 76% year on year last year in terms of electric vehicles. And and we're much, much less than that uh, uh, this year. But I'm, I'm hoping that the supply chain constraints do get solved and we're back to the very, very high growth rates that we've been experiencing previously. And tell me a bit more about that just in terms of demand. Are you seeing strong demand for both consumers and businesses? Because I have to wonder, especially being in the UK with rising interest rates, uh, with inflation being what it is still in the double digits. I mean, is any of that impacting demand? 
I, I think it, it probably is, but it's not the predominant factor. So I really think the supply of the vehicles is the main thing which mm. is controlling the market in the UK currently. Of course, we do have a whole bunch of macroeconomic points that you've, you've mentioned as well. But fundamentally, about one-fifth, 20% of all new vehicle sales in the UK are plug-in or electric vehicles. Um, and that hasn't changed too much. So yes, there are some macroeconomics, but really it's the supply side, I think, which is, which is limiting the growth rate currently. Help me understand how much of your business is residential or consumer and how much of it is business, because I'm trying to understand sort of where these charging stations really are and where the demand is for them. Yeah, so our, our business is, is in the region of 60% of the activity is home charging and, and 40% is, is commercial charging. And that's that's about right versus what a typical electric vehicle driver does. So we say um, something in the region of sort of 70% of all charging happens at home. A small percentage then happens at the workplace and even smaller percentage happens in the public space. And actually only a very small percentage of electric vehicle charging happens in a sort of rapid charge, fast charge, the petrol station equivalent. Mm. So, so we, we think you know, the vast, the best experience of owning an electric vehicle is I wake up every morning and my car is charged. And that's mm-hmm. why we think 60 percent of charging happens at home. So I see. So is that part of the reason why you have said in the past that you don't think that these charging stations will replace petrol stations? Because it, it's a sort of different uh, business model in the sense that people would like to wake up with their car charged, not necessarily, you know, stay on the side of the road while their car charges. Absolutely. And if you run the thought experiment, if your personal car was full of gasoline every morning when you woke up, how often would you need any other solution? And of course, the answer for most people is, generally speaking, I'm covered if my car is full of energy every single morning. So we actually think there is about a 3% crossover between locations where you want a petrol station and locations where you want a charging point. So it's not zero, but it's very much the vanishingly small percentage. 97% of all charging happens in places that are nothing like the traditional petrol station. So then what to do, though? I mean, how challenging is it for folks who want to take a road trip and you have to sort of plan out exactly, you know, where the charging stations are? I mean, how much of a challenge is that for the industry? Well, I think possibly the, the UK is ahead of uh, the US a little bit in this, in that we're beginning to have quite a solid network now. And that 3% of energy, which is when you do want to do those road trips, is very important to you when you have a long distance journey to say. So it, it's probably more than 3% in the consumer's eyes of importance. But in terms of where your energy transfers, the vast majority of energy is transferring in places other than petrol stations. But we do need charging at motorway services, at uh, you know key trunk roads, um, all of those places. We, we have to build that, of course, and that's really making some solid progress in the UK now. Mm. Okay, well, Eric Farabarn, we'll have to leave it here, but uh, good luck with the production delays. Great to have you today. Thank you. And stay with CNN as the FIFA World Cup gets ready for its grand finale. Ukraine's President Zelensky asking to broadcast a message of peace. We have FIFA's reply after this. Welcome back. After almost a month of intense competition, it all comes down to this. The World Cup finals in Qatar, France and Argentina battling it out Sunday in a match that will truly be seen and heard around the world. France hoping to win the World Cup for a second straight tournament. Argentina's Lionel Messi hoping to power his team to World Cup glory for the first time in his career as well. Darren Lewis is live for us in Doha. So, Darren, look, I mean, excitement is brewing. I guess you could argue no matter what happens, this will be one for the history books. It really will be because either uh, Kylian Mbappe, the youngest player to score at a World Cup final since the legendary Pele, 
will reclaim the World Cup on Sunday or Lionel Messi the superstar Argentinian he's 35 years of age he's won the Ballon d'Or the award for the best player in world football a record-breaking seven times he's never won the World Cup and many people feel it will be his destiny to lift the coveted Jules Rimet trophy at uh, around about eight nine o'clock uh, local time here in Doha we'll see on Sunday but it does indeed promise to be a fantastic matchup absolutely and Darren what FIFA making some bold predictions about the popularity of football or soccer as we call it here in the U.S. and North America what are they saying about that also we're learning that Zelensky apparently wanted to uh, broadcast a message of peace I mean what are you hearing about that well, let's do with the more serious one first, because FIFA, again, a massive contradictions around this. They're often pushing the idea that football has the power to build bridges and succeed where politics can fail. And uh, right at the start of the tournament, the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino, was saying exactly that. But I was at his briefing today and he was saying, look, we deal with players, not heads of state. And when people watch football, they want some escapism. They don't want to be told that players want to wear armbands. It was a question about the one love armband that FIFA had banned the players from wearing earlier in the tournament. But then we have this and Rahela, I, I just cannot fathom how uh, uh, the governing body of world football would not be behind a message of world peace uh, at the behest of the Ukrainian president. But that appears to be FIFA's position. We will see if they will climb down from it. But at the moment, they have rejected, per our colleague Matthew Chance's exclusive reporting, the opportunity to send out a message that would have resonated far beyond this region. Yeah, it is uh, shocking to me as well, and we will wait to see. And Darren, uh, just very quickly, what is FIFA saying about the popularity of football? Uh, well, they're very happy. Uh, I think they got a bit carried away with themselves, Rahel, because they were talking about it maybe replacing American football and, basket and ba basketball and baseball in the U.S. by 2026. I think they've got to go some way to do that. But there have been more fans at games, more viewers around the world, around about 5 million. There have been more uh, people coming together with other cultures and leaving with a really positive feeling. No trouble. And that has been a feature of previous major tournaments and World Cups. There haven't been any arrests out here. Everyone has gone away with a feeling that they've had a fantastic football yeah. experience and that has led them to believe that it will continue in the future. Maybe this will, will set a blueprint for future World Cups. We shall see. Darren Lewis, great to have you. Thank you. And that is it for the show. Have a great weekend. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.